0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: I'd like to begin this morning's message, uh, particularly today, with a word of prayer because this message I'm about to give to you While it will be in two parts, uh, two different topics but underneath one umbrella, I want you to know it's one of the more difficult messages for me to preach. And you'll know why as I open up, because of my love for you and yet my passion for you and, and me both to really embrace this truth in our own life, especially in the culture in which we live so I want to welcome the Lord's presence, but also to allow the Lord to prepare our hearts for him to, in a sense, lovingly, because he cares for us as, his, as, a, as a surgeon would, to delicately do surgery on our inner being so that outwardly will be all that God wants us to be. Would you join me together as we pray as a family? Father, with humble hearts, we come before you, and Lord, I thank you that in Scripture you speak so clearly and often explicitly to us. And sometimes because our lives are so built up in the world system that we have such a different value system. And then when we hear your value system, it is so, so different. And it makes it so difficult then for us to balance the two and, and get back in line again. And that takes, Father, your spirit of grace to work within us. And so now, Lord, I am depending upon you. Because, Father, you are the great I am. And that you love us just where we are. And you have a wonderful plan and purpose for our life. So, Lord, for me, I pray that I will speak the truth with mercy and grace and love and humility. And that, Father, you would empower the words that would come. And then, Father, for the rest of us, wherever we are in our walk with you, that this message would speak to us. And that we would have been now at a point where we're willing to make whatever spiritual or mental decision changes we need so it will come out and that our lives will be different forever by your power and for your glory. The Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think looking at a crowd like this that we all enjoy things that are done excellently. I enjoy sports, although I don't play excellently, but I certainly enjoy watching sports. I especially like to watch when someone looks at the ball and he takes this excellent swing and you hear the crack of the ball in the bat and the ball goes over the outfield fence and how exciting that is. And so we like to see sports done excellently. And we also enjoy in the art world, and I think about that. Here is a person who will take a white piece of canvas And then by taking the right colors, capture the emotion of something and put it on this canvas and have this piece of artwork last for ages. And then I think in the music world, and I often hear this about those who are tremendous composers that many of them actually hear the song or the melody in their mind before they ever write it down in all the chords and the, and the different notes that they have. And I, I, look, I look at that and I'm singing their songs and whistling and humming and some of those same songs of those great artists out there that are able to do that with music. And then I move into the world of science. And I'll tell you that we live in a day now that there's been a lot of things done excellently with science. When I was a boy, and I thought I'd never use that phrase, we would be talking about going into space. Now we're talking about building things because we are already in space. And that's done excellently. And I think we could take that through almost every profession and how much we appreciate things that are done excellently. And that's why this passage that we're going to cover now for two weeks really hones in on the importance of being excellent. But then the Lord just doesn't give us that general principle, you know, man up and be excellent. He talks about being excellent. But he also talks about two particular areas. I'd like to show you two verses that are in our passage, and I'm going to read them to you. And if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow me. I'm going to be looking in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 now. And I want you to see this particular passage as it's found in verse 1. Paul says, We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should excel, is the word in the Greek, or abound more and more. And then just a few verses later in verse 10, he says it again to the same group of people in the same letter. And he says, we urge you, brethren, which, by the way, is important because he's not asking unbelievers and non-Christians to do this, but Christians, that you excel or increase more and more. Two times in just a short passage, he basically says the same thing. I urge you to be excellent. Well, I'm not too ignorant I grew up with a mom that when she said it the first time, I better listen. But boy, when she said it the second time, I really better listen because the third time, I felt something with that. Have you grew up with a family like that? Well, I know I have. And so with the Lord, he's saying two times, I urge you to be excellent. And yet, I guess being a Christian a long time and being in leadership, we often don't see that. I read recently where there was a sermon and the sermon had a sermon title and the title went like this, How to Live an Excellent Life in Jesus Christ. And yet, printed in the bulletin, the word excellent itself was misspelled. Now, I know that's a little humorous, and I'm certainly not uh, at all dissing any of our staff that sometimes could misspell something, because mostly they're just copying me. But the bottom line still is, it seems like in Christianity, if you'll agree with me on this, we don't always do things excellently. It seems like we've fallen underneath grace so much that we almost have the idea, it's okay if we mess up because the Lord understands, or the Lord still loves me. Well, I do not want to take away that because the Lord does understand when we fail and he does show grace and he loves us when we do. But at the same time, we like to hang into that because it's easier for us then to live a lackadaisical life without pushing towards excellence because we fall underneath that particular mantle. So don't misunderstand me. God does want that. But on the other hand, we can't get away from the fact that God doesn't want us to have a mediocre faith. He wants us not to have an off the rack religion. That he really wants us to strive towards something that's excellent. In fact, even Jesus himself said it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and here's what you'll read. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, doesn't that sound like a tremendous challenge, a call to excellence, and we gotta be perfect like God is perfect? Well, it's easy to understand that in this world I'll never be as perfect as God is. In fact, that word perfect that's not only used there, but also used by the Apostle Paul as a word that meant to finish or to complete like a race, and so we don't complete what God calls us to do as a Christian according to godliness, then we really haven't really reached that level of perfection. I really like what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, and this is the one you want to look at. It says this, Paul writing again, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already arrived at perfection, but I keep working towards that day when I will finally be All that Christ saved me for and wants me to be. So it's true. I want to be perfect because Christ is perfect. And so today I'm going to do what I can to strive for that level of excellence that he would have in our life. So again, this message today is really designed for those of you out there that have come to a point in your life that says, I want to go to the next level. You know, one of my mantras for life is good, better, best. Never let it rest till your good is better and your better is best. And so in the passage we're going to cover this week and a couple of weeks from now is in what two areas is this context talking about being excellent? Now, I want to quickly say that these aren't the only two areas found in Scripture. It's all over the Bible. And so he does call us to excellence. He tells us in what areas to be excellent. He gives us the power to do it. He gives us the right motivation to do it. So excellence is something attainable for every one of you, wherever you are in your growth experience with the Lord, you can achieve that area of excellence as you continue to grow. So what are the two areas that we're going to be covering this week and the next time we're together? The first one is going to be on moral excellence. The reason of that is because it's found in our next passage of Scripture. So some of you that are here today that might be thinking, uh-oh, someone called the pastor and ratted me out. That's not the case. I know of no, none of you. I have no evidence of you living in moral impurity. On the other hand, I do live in a culture that we do have people that can look like they're doing right on the outside and in the right context of people, but they have another life going on around them. Now, if you don't mind, without anyone feeling pain, would you raise your hand if you knew someone that seemed everything was all right until you found out later that they had another life of moral impurity? Would you raise your hand? You can see it's all over the sanctuary here. Now, with that in mind, that means then not about them, but about us. Where are we in the area of moral excellence? The secondary that he speaks about being excellent in in this passage is what I'm going to call vocational excellence. Now, when I open that up, it's not just do a good job on your job. It's going to be the whole issue of what does the Bible have to say about ambition in our life as a Christian? Yes, particularly as it might focus on vocation, but overall, whether you're retired or not, what does the Bible have to say about ambition? But today we're going to talk about moral excellence in your life and my life, as we now want to stand pure before the Lord, but also before our community in the area of our sexuality. So I'm going to ask one question and then spend the rest of our time today answering that one question, at least through this passage, and hopefully it'll be something that'll be a blessing to you. So here's my one question today, is that is this, how do you treat your body? Now I know that came from this great spiritual beginning and now I'm talking about your body. But it does talk a lot about our body in this passage and I want to address that in in just a moment. Now for those of you that are new to Christianity, some of you might be aware of other religions and other isms that are out there. If you're coming from an Eastern religion, they often would separate spirituality from your physical body. They would have spirituality out there and your physical nature over here and they would separate the two. But if you go through Scripture, God's mind on paper... Totally accurate because of science, history, prophecy, all that we know and need to know about the veracity of Scripture. It says that we cannot separate our body from our spiritual life, that they do go together. So when we do talk about our body, it is. In fact, Scripture even refers to our body as this. Are you ready? It's called the temple of the Holy Spirit. So our body is not just a container of organs attached to some emotions that we will shed when we die. Our body for Christians also is a container for the Holy Spirit, and we are vitally born again in this regenerated experience to be like Christ. And so with that in mind, we now have a body that will do things that needs to be brought under control because it will affect our spiritual intimacy with God and our walk with Him. So it is together. Maybe that's why that the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. He wrote this when he was facing temptations. He said... I beat my body and I make it my slave. Now when you read that you might think, you mean Paul actually would get mad at his body and hit him? Well if you want to take it literally you might say that, but that's not really what it's saying. Actually what it's saying is I take control of my body, I discipline my body, I realize that my body that is made up with hormones and chemicals and and a nature that has a propensity to sin all the time, that it's going to start getting away from me, but I have a mind. And my mind could be the mind of Christ. It can now take, change my attitude, my thinking, and my body now can be in subjection to my mind. So I beat my body, but I do it not with my fists. I do it with my right thinking, and I bring my body under control. So it's a disciplined thing. Look, if you will, back at First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, do you see that in your Bible? So if you want to write it down as far as a particular note, you might say this, my question, what is God's will for my life? Should I buy this car or that car? Should I buy this house or that house? Should I go into this career or that career? Should I stay on the island or get off the island? What is God's will for my life? Well, those are important because they do factor into almost everything you do during the day. But God says there's something that no matter what you do will still be a part of it, and that is your moral purity. That's why he says, what is God's will? God's will is your sanctification. Now, that's a word that most Christians hardly ever use. They might have heard, but they hardly ever use it. And people that are outside the faith, that's such a weird word. The closest thing to the word sanctification is the word sanctuary. And most of them might think of a bird sanctuary, let alone a worship sanctuary, let alone ourselves to be sanctified for the Lord. So simply put, the word sanctified basically means that you are choosing to grow. You're separating yourself from another lifestyle. You're choosing to become more like Christ. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. So he says, what is your sanctification? He says, it's God's will. So God's will is that you live a separated life under the Lord. What is a separated life under the Lord? A holy life is God's will. They both go together. So that's what it is. Now, I'd like to give you three words, and these would be important for you to remember. They may not be in your notes. You might want to jot these down. I want to speak to those of you that are really growing to understand some concepts of Christianity. I'm laying a foundation because I'm going to get extremely practical in just a moment or two. So here's the first word, it is the word we call justification. Justification is a word that simply means this, that when you trust Christ as your savior, God declares you absolutely righteous and that you are heaven bound knowing that Jesus Christ is your savior. Justification is something that happens once and only once when you trust Christ as savior. So let me ask a simple question to you here. How many of you in this room have accepted Christ as your personal Savior by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Would you raise your hand? That would mean that you've experienced God's justification the moment you trusted Christ. And it also means it's something that's been done in your past. The second word is a word that's called sanctification. It's the word we've been talking about here recently. That word is something that is a little bit more progressive. This is something that happens the moment you trust Christ until the time you go to heaven. It's a progressive thing where now you're becoming more like Christ. You become more like Him in your attitude. You're more like Him in your behavior. You're more like Him because you're choosing to become more like Him. So sanctification is something that you're doing now. The third word is the word glorification. First word, justified. That happened when you trust Christ as Savior. Sanctification is an onward thing where you're growing to become more like Christ. The word glorified is something that happens to you the moment you are now in heaven when you are automatically, right then, fully, completely made like Christ. That's something that happens permanently and is in the future after you leave this present world. So justification happened when you trusted Christ, sanctification is something that's happening now, and then glorification happens later on. If you at least understand that much, would you say, uh-huh? uh-huh. All right. So today we're not going to talk all about justification. I'm going to trust you, trust you Christ to save you. If you haven't, we'll help you get on board with that in a moment. I'm not going to talk about so much when you get to heaven, what glorification is. But I do want to talk about what it means to be sanctified, set apart today in one area, although there are many. Today we're going to talk about your sexuality. Now, as I begin this topic on sexual immorality, I like to refer to that as what I call collegiate sins. Now when you hear the word collegiate sins, you might think, uh oh, does that mean that sexual immorality is something that is rampant in in college and so I got to prepare my young people for that? No, no. What I mean by collegiate sins is simply this. People look at sexual immorality as a collegiate sin in the sense that it has different degrees. What I mean by that? When you hear sexual immorality, most Christians probably think that must be something that is so perverse, I ought not to think about it, I ought not to certainly speak those words, and I'm not going to do it now because there are children here, but I think you know, some people think it's that hottest, highest degree of immorality and perversion, that raw flesh stuff out there. And then you have this little stuff over here that only happens in your mind, okay? It's a time where someone passes by, you think, hmm, I wonder know what they look like without their clothes on. I wonder what it would be like to be with them, and da 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 So it's a, it's a mental thing, a fleeting thing. Whether you see it, you hear it, you experience it, or you're sitting here right now and you're painting a mental picture of it. So anywhere, that would be called a collegiate sin. It's a degree of it. And you want to know which of those I'm going to speak to today? I believe the Bible speaks to every single one of them. I think if we... Uh, Cut it off here at the pass at the source. We won't have the problem later on. But at the same time, we need to speak to this whole issue. And that's why I asked for prayer because this is very difficult. And I'd like you to remember this, dear ones. Are you with me? I'm looking at a very mature bunch of people. And like I said, I don't know anyone that's walking in any form of sexual immorality here. And that's between you and the Lord. But I think that there could be some that are in this room right now. And as I'm speaking to them, they are really inside nauseous. Can you imagine for a moment if you were doing something that was not morally right, how nauseous you might feel, scared, embarrassed, a little angry, pushing back against the message, trying to sort it all out, yet you know that he's probably right, and I know what I'm going to do, and I'm all messed up, my life is all tangled into this thing, and it's bigger than he can even talk about how they're struggling right now. And if you're not into it, would you at least throw up a quick prayer of, of God's blessing on those people in this, that they would know that God loves them and that we're here to help them and we certainly don't look down on them, and some of you even more so because you've been there, done that, and now you're in a new world and you're celebrating that and you wish they would be in that world with you. So I just want to say it in as much love as I, I possibly can. This world is rampant in sexual sin. If you agree with that, can you say amen? It is rampant in it. Almost anywhere you go. I, 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 it, it was so visually different when I was growing up than what it is now. What they permitted then, publicly, then... It's so different what's publicly permitted today. So I'd like to read to you this passage that deals with it, and then we're going to unpack it. We won't be here all afternoon, but I want you to hear it from the Word of God and not just from my sermon. If you want to follow just reading verses 3 through verse 8 so you're knowing this is God, God who loves you, God who has a wonderful plan for your life, here's part of that plan. He says this, For this is the will of God, your separated life unto Him, that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the unchurched, unsaved Gentiles who do not know God that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother or we could say sister as well in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified for God did not call us to uncleanness but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. So if you're rejecting what you're hearing today, the issue is between you and God. Why? Who has given us His Holy Spirit. The Spirit is doing the number on you, not so much me. Well, I'd like to give you three truths for those of you that are saying, I have struggled with this. I, I at least want to hear what you have to say. I'd like to get out of this dilemma. I've got to do something different with my life. And I also want to help my kids. I want to give them something to work on. And what would be practical that I can try to bring it into their language, into their their world, their life, their stage in life? Let me give you three that might be helpful. First of all, you do need to decide to say no. You've got to say no. So let's practice that. When you are tempted with sexual immorality of any kind, what do you need to say to that, everyone? Ooh, that is good. I expect you to mumble that out, actually. You really shot that thing out. All right, that's good. Let's say it again. That's even better. You need to say no. Now, what do you need to say no to? I think before you know what to say no to, you need to know that when it was written, I don't want you to think that the culture in the Bible was a lot different than the culture that it is today. The culture of the Bible, mostly in the New Testament, if I can give the Roman Empire they were steeped in immorality. Those of you that have studied any form of history growing up, you know enough about the Roman culture to know how bad it was. Those of you that have seen even movies trying to depict some of that garbage out there, it was worse than any movie you'll ever see. But now, they're not in this. They're in a city called Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica, they added a twist to this. They also threw in their religion. So, in other words, sexuality or immorality, we might say in this case, was attached to a religious experience that they would have with God. So even in the masculine context, if I could speak to you dear men for a moment, back then these men were so given over to because their buddies did it, it was accepted to do this, and in most cases their wives probably hated it but turned their head because that's what everybody else is doing. They had adultery with mistresses, multiple. They had adultery with slaves. We even experienced some of that in our own Civil War days. And especially they had... Adultery or immorality with the temple prostitutes, and we can throw in of both sex. So you have all that going on. So when he's telling them to abstain from sexual immorality, he was also telling those same people that were steeped in a culture very similar to ours. The only difference is we don't even have to go to the temple to get it. We don't even have to go to the beach to get it. All we have to do is one click, two click, three clicks, we're there. In the privacy of our own home, but in full view of God. So we need to say no. You see in the verse where it says that we need to abstain from these things? There's a common word that you hear a lot today. It's the word abstinence. And so we're telling our young people that they need to abstain from this and to have that abstinence program. I'm very much for it, although I know that people can struggle with it because we're asking kids that have no power of the Holy Spirit to do something that at least conscience says is right, that they should abstain, but they really have a lot less power to do that, and especially when it's paraded in front of them. their friends that do, and all that that's out there that's free. I know that that's a very challenging program. doesn't mean the program is wrong, but it is a challenging one. But here's what I'd like you to hear. While we hear that and we applaud, there's got to be done something for kids that would be needing to know to be abstaining. From this stuff, we put it in the context of young people. Instead of when it says abstain from sexual immorality, that is actually said in the context to uh, unmarried people as well as uh, as married people. So really, what he's saying is to you, men and women that are here that are married that have access to intimacy with your mate. He still says you need to abstain from sexual immorality. So whether it's before marriage or in marriage or maybe in a sense after the marriage is over. And you think you're free again and you've done all that, you can have it back. He says abstain from all of that. So now with that being said, I'd like to give you a couple of the areas in which you might say no. Now I will tell you very quickly that I'm not unpacking each one of these areas. I would delight to do that with you so that you have a grounding more in Scripture because Scripture has a lot more information. Those of you that need more, I'll be glad to sit down privately. If you're a guy and if you're a gal, you can sit down with my sweet wife, okay? Okay. Now, for what, what should you say no to? Well, obviously all sexual wrongdoing, but in these areas, simply put, you could put it down yourself, you know. Say no to premarital sex, even if it's with someone you hope to marry. Give me a few moments and I will come back to that concept in a moment. But for right now, to someone you even think you're going to marry, you're to say no to that in premarital sex. Number two, no extramarital sex. That means no messing around with someone else who is not married while you're married or messing around with someone who is married while you're married. We're to say no to any extra marital affairs. Thirdly, we need to say no to homosexual sins. Now again, this is one I wish I had more time to open up and maybe sometime on a Sunday morning at another location here at another time I'd like to give you what I believe the Bible clearly says, not only biblical, but I'd like to talk about it socially, emotionally, and the rest on a practical level besides spiritual. But I don't have the time to do that, but I have as much confidence if I don't do it to you now to still say, biblically, we're to say no to homosexual sins, starting from the inside out. Number four would be saying no to pornography, saying no to pornography, now that doesn't